Today, I'm joined by good friend and former colleague, Derek Fang. Derek, want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Hi, Susan. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Super excited to be here. Um, as you already said, I'm your ex-colleague, not from your actuarial days that we don't speak about, <laughs> but from Yale, where I'm a lecturer in the Statistics and Data Science Department. As you can tell, maybe, from my accent, I'm a Chinese-born Australian with an American PhD. Uh, in fact, this exact same PhD as yourself, well, not quite. Uh, my thesis was a little bit different to yours. Okay, what was the title of your thesis again? So the title of my thesis was The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Conditioning on Social Network Analysis. So that's quite the word full. And if your listeners want to know more about that, they'll have to ask you to invite me back for another episode. I think that can be arranged, but I have to say that is a very interesting title for a thesis. It's the kind of name that makes you want to learn more. So good marketing there. <laughs> Thank you. So what do you have in store for us today, Derek? Right. So today I want to talk about a deep learning paper that is now actually a few years old. So it was published in 2016, which in the field of deep learning is essentially ancient history. So my reason for presenting this paper is twofold. First, it is an interesting paper on its own, as it was the first paper to show that you could use deep learning techniques on electronic health records to improve our ability to predict diseases. But for me, more importantly, it has become something of a poster child for this new idea that has been getting considerable airtime recently, which is that you know the, the concept of knowledge has somehow changed in the era of big data and machine learning. So I'm really curious about what you mean there, the concept of knowledge. So like how has we, what we know and how we know it has changed? Right. Well, we'll get to that maybe in another episode. I think there is a lot of things to discuss in that aspect, but I first want to just go over what this paper is about. So I will say, though, that I think one of the reasons why this paper is the poster child for this, this movement is not so much because of the contents of that paper, but because they came up with this incredibly catchy name, namely Deep Patient, right? Like, doesn't that sound profound to you? I mean, granted, it is just piggybacking off the brilliantly named Deep Learning. Yeah, Deep Anything is how you really want to market a brand new statistical machinery it's kind of the way to make waves in the news nowadays. Right. And I think, you know, maybe we should change our field to deep statistics and deep data science and, and add deep everything to all of our methods and then all the deep students professor, are going to Deep professor, <laughs> deep lecturer. Deep. <laughs> yes. And then I think we'll get a lot of money coming in from, uh, from grants. Um, so that is a nice... You idea. should probably submit a proposal to your chair at this point. <laughs> yes, if he's listening. Okay, so speaking of deep learning, my favorite picture that I use when I introduce this topic is a photo of this guy sitting on a chair at a table reading a book, but he's doing all of this at the bottom of a swimming pool, and it never fails to get a few chuckles from the class. I think I remember this picture. It's uh, this guy basically learning while drowning in a swimming pool. So yeah, that sounds about right, like the accurate description of what deep learning is. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's get to this paper you're talking about, Deep Patient. So the full title of the paper is also a mouthful. Um, it is Deep Patient, an unsupervised representation to predict the future of patients from their electronic health record. Uh, it is 
by Miyoto et al. and published on May 17, 2016 in Nature's Open Access Journal Scientific Reports. And we'll link to this paper on our uh, website as well. Yes. So it's a long paper. So I think we should try to parse the uh, title pretty slowly. So scrapping away the jargon that's in there, just focusing on the objective for now, predict the future sounds so generally positive and ambitious that I guess they're selling deep patient as a panacea of sorts. Yeah, I think another reason why the the press and journalists have gravitated to this paper is right there in the title, they claim that they can now predict the future. But the reality is, you know, if you look carefully at their contributions, you realize that they've, you know, sort of oversold on such claims of clairvoyant. Um, But to be honest, that's just one of the truths about writing papers, right? It's You think of it as just a battle of ideas and the best idea wins, but unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your opinion, it's it's also about marketing, right? You need to convince people that your ideas are good. And so hats off to these authors because they've, you know, succeeded brilliantly at that. What I like about this paper is that it sort of captures the various facets of what it means to be a statistician or data scientist. And so obviously the most important facet for us is the data. As Andrew Ng, the famous professor who taught the MOOC course on machine learning said, data is the new oil. Of course, he was talking about it from a different perspective, which is that a large part of the success of machine learning methods to date is from us having access to huge amounts of data. So the classic example of this is with neural networks, right? All the crucial theory and methods were already developed in the 1990s, and it took a decade before we had the data and the computing power to really demonstrate that neural networks were the right tool. So what's the data here in question? The data here in question is electronic health records. And and sometimes they're abbreviated EHRs. What are they in a few words just for our listeners? They are essentially a digital record of your visits to the doctor or hospital, and it includes all the information that the doctor collects about you and your condition during your visits. So in this particular paper, it was 4.2 million de-identified patients from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I've always wondered how good these records tend to be because when I go to the doctor, I can see the nurse practitioner spending probably 50% of his or her time just inputting my information into a computer system. And inevitably they are totally frustrated with the system. And I think that's part of the issue with these records is that First of all, there's, there's this whole human input, and then everyone is going to be different, and there's no sort of systematic way of inputting all this data. So this is part of the issue with this data set. In particular, we have issues of it being noisy, sparse, and incomplete, which, by the way, are two separate things. So explain what you mean by that. Okay, this is sort of a subtle point because both sparsity and incompleteness have the same manifestation in your data set, namely that you have entries that are empty, right? So let's start with incompleteness. An example of incomplete data would be if the doctor forgot to input their patient's age into the electronic health record. Now, clearly the patient has an age, right? But it would be simply missing from the electronic health record. So that's an example of incomplete data. And actually, as an aside, this is a whole separate area of research in causal inference where they're interested in the different ways to model data depending on how it's missing, right? Whether it be missing by random or not random and so on. Now, on the other hand, you have sparsity, right? Sparsity comes into play that's independent of whether or not your data set is missing. So a good example of sparsity is when you have categorical data, for instance, the state you would reside in. 
And you represent this data using dummy variables or if you're a machine learning practitioner, one hot vectors. So dummy variables are sometimes also called indicator variables. You can think of these as just being um, a string of zeros and ones where the one indicates whether you are a particular, you have a particular value. So, so getting to this example of your state of residence, there might be a total of 50 or 49 variables that are created to represent this variable. So there might be a whole variable that records whether or not you reside in Connecticut. So anybody who doesn't live in Connecticut, you all get zeros. Anybody who does live in Connecticut, you get a one. And you can imagine that only helped to identify people who do live in one single state. So you need to have many, many, many more columns to get to all the states. So the reason why we call this sparse is because there are so many more zeros than ones as you look through all of these. And so to reiterate, like this is different from incompleteness, right? So it's it's not that the data is missing, it's just that you have the data representation is in such a way that it's just sparse by definition. Yeah, so like the ones are just, um, they're rare by design as opposed to by neglect or by some other reason the cause is missing us. Mm -hmm. Also, this data set is very high dimensional. Right, so we're talking about thousands upon thousands of columns with data from medications, diagnoses, procedures, lab tests, and the list goes on. And finally, you also have the free text clinical note. So like a free response on an exam or something. So this is when the doctor or nurse practitioner just writes down notes about any symptoms or diagnoses they arrive at, possibly through talking to you or some other observational method. And as you know, uh, free text is the bane of our existence as statisticians because of the unstructured nature of it makes it almost impossible for us to parse. Right? So the way they handle this problem is that they run what is known as a topic model on the text. So in a nutshell, topic modeling is a machine learning technique to automatically extract topics from documents. So they essentially convert the free text into a distribution over topic. And we talked a little bit about this um, back in episode eight. That's a long ways back to look, but we did talk about a particular topic modeling technique there called LDA or latent Dirichlet allocation. So you might flip back to that if you're interested. Yes, you should definitely do that because LDA is, is really cool. So one of the issues with this data set is that you can have the same clinical phenotype. So for example, a health condition like type 2 diabetes, this can be expressed in multiple ways in your data set. So for instance, either you have some laboratory value that exceeds some predetermined number, or it could just be mentioned in the free text. There's no just like one column where saying, oh, do you have type 2 diabetes or not? Right? If, if, you, if we had that, that would be great, but, but we don't. And finally, there's this time component to this data set because you have individuals that are going to be appearing multiple times in this data set. So it turns out the average number of records per individual is 89 records. Wow, that is a lot of visits. And I, and I bet that depending on the age of the patient, you may have more or less data as well because the age of the patient probably determines the frequency or, or the, the time that they've had to accumulate those visits and also um, the, the number of health conditions they have to juggle with and, and go to the hospital for during that time. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, so this is the issue, right? So the number of records is going to obviously be interacted with the, the age of the individual and everything else. And this just makes for an incredibly messy data set. 
now that we've explained the data set, what is the next step that we are meant to do? So from a machine learning perspective, there are really two directions one can go here. So either you take the supervised route or the unsupervised route. You mean like and what we can do with the data at this, at this point? Exactly. So let me first you know, describe what these two different things are. So let me start with supervised learning. It's essentially what we're most familiar with. It's the case where you have some data matrix X and a response vector or outcome Y, and you basically wish to understand uh, or determine the mapping from X to Y. So removing the math lingo to reiterate, um, you know, you have a set of outcomes Y, set of possible characteristics X that might help you predict Y. Your goal under supervised learning is to learn the relationship between X and Y. Right. And so the classic example of supervised learning is linear regression the thing we all love, where you assume that there's essentially a linear relationship between the characteristics and the outcome. Unsupervised learning, on the other hand, is essentially asking the question, well, if you don't have uh, your outcome and you're only given your characteristics, what are the, some of the interesting questions you can ask? So a classical example of unsupervised learning would be k-means, which attempts to cluster the data into separate clusters. And that's to say that the k-means algorithm is a mathematical approach whose goal is just to find subgroups, natural subgroups in the data. So you feed in the individual data and it separates those individuals into groups within which individuals are similar. Yeah. Okay, so now we understand unsupervised versus supervised. As I said already, they worked on the unsupervised problem. But actually, uh, I worked on a similar problem around the same time as when this paper was published, uh, and I worked on the supervised version of this. So in that project, we were interested in estimating readmission rates for surgeries related to cardiovascular disease, and we also use electronic health records. What are readmission rates? They're essentially the probability of being readmitted to the hospital after surgery. And as part of the Affordable Care Act, hospitals with high admission rates received financial penalties. So this was really important to understand and collect. It sounds like readmission is just bad. It kind of suggests that maybe the surgery was not 100% successful or if there were complications. So the Affordable Care Act wanted to somehow penalize hospitals for uh, maybe not doing such a great job. So if that might come through in these high readmission rates. Um, is that is that correct take there? Yes, exactly. It sounds like a really interesting project. Um, how how did the hospitals do in general? Unfortunately, the, the the project sort of died down for for multiple reasons. In terms of the actual how useful this was in terms of like calculating readmission rates and giving hospitals financial penalties, I don't actually know the details about the success of that program. All I will say is that. Um, I'm a firm believer in what is known as Goodhart's law, which states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so it's dangerous to to force you know people to do something. You know, you have unintended consequences all the time. Okay, so at least for me, one of the biggest hurdles for this project, besides the sheer size of the data set that we have, I think it was similar in, in scope. So this one is 4.2 million. I think we had around 2 million records. The problem is essentially, how do you account for the multiple entries of individuals, right? So electronic health records are essentially these time snapshots of a person's health, like, you know, when they come in. But ideally, what we want is to be able to model an individual's health at all time points in their life, right? And it was unclear to us at the time how to deal with this time series. And so I think that was part of the reason why, you know, this project sort of fizzled out because we just weren't able to find a way to do this. Ultimately, what we were doing was predicting readmissions rates, uh, which is a supervised learning problem. 
and the Y in that case is whether someone gets readmitted, and the X could be all sorts of other characteristics of the individual. Uh, but you mentioned that this deep patient paper was talking about unsupervised learning. So what's the unsupervised problem that they're talking about? The goal there is essentially to perform feature extraction on the electronic health record. Feature extraction? What is that? Yeah, it sounds really fancy, but it's sort of in the same spirit as PCA, Principal Component Analysis, which is essentially a way to compress the data while retaining as much information as possible. So it's like asking the computer to give you an executive summary on each patient. Right. In this example, what we would hope would be to extract salient features about the person's health or diagnosis. And this is actually a common theme in machine learning methods, this idea of learning a good representation for our data, where the notion of what is good depends on the task at hand. And that's actually why we have a conference literally called the International Conference on Learning Representations, or ICLR for short. So there's actually a conference that is wholly devoted to the subfield of machine learning. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if I'd call a subfield. I mean, some people could say the whole idea of machine learning is to just learn representations. Fair. Um, <laughs> it is very important. So actually, what they use in this particular paper is they use this tool called denoising autoencoders to basically do the feature extraction. Okay, so what are autoencoders? I don't think we've talked about them yet in this podcast. They're pretty advanced neural network architecture, but let me just give you some intuition for how they work. What you have, like with any model, is you have input and output, and you're trying to learn a function from the input space to the output space. But the interesting thing about autoencoders is that your input is exactly the same thing as your output, hence the name autoencoder. But that sounds incredibly easy because the function that maps the input to the output would be the identity map, which in plain terms just means whatever the input is, I don't have to do anything to it, I can just spit it out as the output. Yes, yeah, so if that were the case, then this would just be trivial and stupid. But what you do is that you actually force the model to have a handicap you essentially create a bottleneck in your neural network architecture such that in the middle of the neural network you force the data to be represented with less vectors um, which then in some sense basically forces you to squeeze your data into a more sparse representation. So just to reiterate then, you basically have a neural network that takes the input data and then along the way um, as you train the model, you do actually make the neural network transform the data, compressing it in, in a way, and then ultimately it still needs to do a pretty good job at reconstructing the original input. Yes. I think we should definitely spend another episode talking about autoencoders because uh, they're, they're really interesting. But actually, the interesting thing about this is that not only do they use autoencoders, but they use the denoised version of that. And so what's the denoise version? It's essentially, instead of inputting your data, so in this case, electronic health records, what you're going to input is the noisy version of the electronic health record. What do you so, mean by that? What do you mean by noisy? Generally speaking, what we mean by a noisy input is if you basically add some random permutation to the data. But in this particular example, due to the multitude of different data types you know, in your personal records, you'll have some things that are categorical, like gender, while other things are quantitative, like age or cholesterol level. What they mean is that by noise, you're going to basically hide entries at random. So they're going to take the original data and then just wipe out entries in the EHR at random. Is there a reasoning behind that? Yeah, so 
The idea behind this is that they're essentially trying to simulate the missingness of electronic health records. As we uh -huh. said in the beginning, the problem with electronic health records is that you have a lot of missing data. And so what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to have a model that's able to take that into account and not like fail, you know, even if you have just some amount of missing data. So this mm -hmm. is sort of a way of sort of, you know, taking advantage of what you understand about the, the data set that you have and then incorporating that in. And in some respect, what you're essentially trying to do is make sure that you have a really nice and compressed version of the data that's not just fitting the data to the data that you see. Got it. Okay, so finally you feed in your electronic health records to this neural network and it's going to spit out a 500 length vector per individual. And that's like the, um, the output of your autoencoder, the 500 length vectors. Exactly. Crucially, we don't really understand what each entry in this vector really means. Um, so you might have started with age, cholesterol, BMI, you wipe out a few of these entries at random, and now this output vector for a particular individual is completely meaningless. It's just numbers. Meaningless to us, right? To that's, us. <laughs> yeah, so that's the key thing. So the question is, once we have these numbers, how do we evaluate, you know, this deep patient? So what, what they're essentially going to do is they're going to take these 500 extracted features and then use them in a supervised learning problem, right? So in this particular example, the supervised learning problem is to predict the probability of an individual developing a disease in the future. Hmm. And so what they actually do is run this on a whole array of diseases to show that this is a general purpose method that isn't just capturing information that is specific to one disease. And finally, what they're able to show is that versus other unsupervised methods like PCA, K-means, Gaussian mixture models, their deep patient method is able to be better predict uh, the development of a disease in the future for the individuals in their data set. Okay, so, so this is now then saying that those 500 length vectors are truly meaningful because they're able to do all these helpful things in a, in a predictive sense. Um, how do you feel about it? Are you skeptical? I think in terms of the actual evaluation, it's not that surprising, right? So okay. as we said, you know, you're comparing sort of, you know, I'm not sure if I would say apples to oranges, but you're, you're pitting, you know, these really classical techniques against the state-of-the-art deep learning technique. It's like bringing um, a gun to a sword fight. <laughs> exactly. It's just unfair. But I think that's not to say that, you know, this is not good science. I think the issue is that they use phrases like predicting the future. Really what they've done here is they've basically found a way to basically compress the data that you find in electronic health records that are really, really messy and high dimensional into this really clean, you know, 500 uh, length vector. And, you know, as an aside, you can then use that vector down the line in terms of your machine learning pipeline. But that's not to say that you're you know, able to predict the future with it. To recap, uh, so the contribution of this paper is essentially being the first to apply fancy deep learning techniques to electronic health records. But that framing is hiding a lot of the messy work that goes into getting these data sets cleaned up and a format ready to be inputted into the new network architecture. And I think this is one of the things that people don't really realize about being a data scientist is that like most of the work comes in the beginning where you're basically cleaning the data set. And they obviously did a really good job of that. But as I hinted at the beginning of the episode, this paper has been 
playing an even bigger role than than just you know being the first paper. It has become the poster child to this idea that true fundamental knowledge is just no longer a thing, and that we live in a world where it's, we are doomed to not understand it, even while we may predict what happens. So now we kind of come full circle to this idea that when we know something nowadays, it doesn't imply that we have full understanding anymore, and that's more of a philosophical point. On the one hand. Some people are hugely skeptical of methods whose machinery is opaque, and in fact, the phrase "black box" was associated with a lot of machine learning methods like neural networks. And on the other hand, if the methods are able to predict well the health outcomes of new individuals that they haven't seen consistently and reliably,、um, I would say this is one step forward for science. That's kind of my take. So I think that. You know, this is a really interesting question, and it gets to this new area of machine learning, which is interpretability. So the question is: We have all these, you know, fancy algorithms, and we don't really understand the inner workings of them. So, you know, in this example of the patient, we have these, you know, 500 dimension、uh, feature vector representation, and we don't really understand what these 500 dimensions are, but they're able to outperform, you know, all the state-of-the-art methods. And so the question is: Is there a trade-off between interpretability and the ability to do well, the ability to predict, or is it just a case of you know we don't know what the right method is? Maybe there is a method that's both interpretable and actually is able to predict well.、Right? And that's an open question, and that's one we're trying to figure out in terms of our research. Yeah, so, there are a lot of people working on interpretability in machine learning, right? It seems like this is a pretty hot topic now. Can we produce some method that does really well at prediction as well as produce interpretable output? On the topic of the philosophical point, I have a lot to say about that, but I think we should leave that for another episode. <laughs> I like how you've left a lot of hanging threads here to really guarantee that we bring you back in for another episode, Derek. You know, it's, it's all marketing.、Um. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Derek, for coming by today. I actually learned a lot about this paper through this、uh, conversation. It's a really fun thing to talk about. Yeah, I also learned a lot about the paper too. Thanks for listening to DataBytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast@gmail.com. That's DataBytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.